Father God, this is your holy word. The word that you have sovereignly preserved for us through ages past so that we as your people might be nourished by it, Lord, led by its truth, transformed by your spirit. Speak to our hearts now, Father God. Quiet all other things that might demand our attention. Let us not be distracted. And Lord, give us eyes to see, ears to hear, minds and hearts to understand how great, how deep the love of Christ our Savior is. In your name we pray. Amen. Have you ever had a really difficult trial follow what was really a significant triumph in your life? You know, maybe you, got, you finally got that promotion that you always wanted, and then your company turns around and initiates cuts, and the job is not at all what you thought it would be. Your moment of triumph is followed by a great trial. Maybe in, maybe in other ways within your family, you know, maybe you, you finally found that person that God means for you to be with for your whole life and you get married and you're looking forward to all this marital bliss and then the difficulty of marriage struggles set in and you go through deep valleys. Maybe the same thing happens in, in parenting. You know, you feel like you're doing well, like you're really seeing milestones happen in your child's life and then something comes out of nowhere. Maybe it's a significant health problem. Maybe it's a bad diagnosis, or, or maybe it's a severe behavior that really just derails their entire life and well-being, and triumph turns into trial. Well, that's what we see kind of happening in our text this morning. As we talked about last week, we looked at the transfiguration of Christ, this, this apex moment in the life and ministry of our Savior where he is up on the mountaintop and it is literally transfigured, transformed into the glory that was his before the incarnation. And alongside him appear Moses and Elijah to encourage him as he's on his way to the cross. And it's such a spectacular moment that the apostle Peter's like, let's stay up here. Let's never leave. Let's build tents and just have this go on forever. But as I said last week, sooner or later you have to come down the mountain. And that's what we have happening in the text before us this morning. Jesus has, has just come out of this moment when, when even his father spoke from the heavens and said, this is my son, my chosen one, listen to him. The majesty of God was displayed on that mountaintop for a precious few. And now Jesus and those few disciples descend that mountaintop to go back down into the valley into chaos. But what we're meant to see here is that just because they've descended the mountain doesn't mean that Christ is any less majestic. We're going to look at this text from the perspective of, of three different persons or groups. We're going to look at it first from the father, the father who is seeking Christ to heal his son. We're going to look at it secondly from the perspective of Jesus and how he rebukes the people when he arrives. And then thirdly, we're just going to look at this from the perspective of the people and their response to him when he heals the boy. And so first, let's talk about seeking the supremacy of Christ. 
of the three synoptic gospels. And when we use the word synoptic, it means that Matthew, Mark, and Luke they cover a lot of the same material. There's a lot of similarities, even though they're by three different writers. And you would expect that, right? Because they're all writing about the life of their Savior. Well, Mark actually has the longest account and the most information about this particular episode in the ministry of Jesus. At just seven verses, Luke's is the shortest account. And the reason that Luke is short is because he wants to quickly connect the majesty of Christ on the mountain with the majesty of Christ in the valley. We know by this point in his earthly ministry that large crowds gathered wherever Jesus was seen. And so when Christ came down the mountain with his three disciples, there was a whole multitude waiting there for him with the other nine disciples. Mark tells us that the religious leaders were even present in this great crowd, and they were arguing and debating with the disciples. And so whatever sense of of elation, whatever sense of astonishment and calm that they carried with them from the mountain of transfiguration the previous day, that was quickly extinguished, especially in the minds and hearts of those three disciples. Out of this noise and turmoil stepped an exasperated father with a heart-rendering plea. Look there in verse 38. Teacher, I beg you to look at my son, for he's my only child And behold, a spirit seizes him, and he suddenly cries out. It convulses him so that he foams at the mouth and shatters him and will hardly leave him. And I begged your disciples to cast it out, but they could not. The language that is used here is very severe. Mark goes, again, a little further. He gives us the additional detail that the demon also made the boy sometimes throw himself into fire or water to destroy him. And if you're a parent in this situation, I think all of us can imagine the the horror of this. You know, last year in in my congregation, I had one of our our young people was suicidal for a period of time. And and their parents, it was an incredibly dark time during, during their lives as they literally couldn't sleep. One of them had to stay awake at all times. One of them had to be with their child at all times because their child might take their life. And they were going to counsel. They, 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 they were striving to try to not check her into some sort of rehab program. They were trying to be there for every minute of every day. And it was an incredibly strenuous and stressful time. Imagine this parent. Imagine your only child dropping to the ground in seizures, foaming at the mouth. Imagine having to keep an eye on them every second, lest they be drowned in a cistern of water that they were thrown into, or lest they fall down in the fire and be burned. That's the anguish of this father. Never had a moment's peace or rest, being ruled by fear over how his child might be harmed or killed, looking for any solution and finding none. And so this father, when he heard about the kind of things that Jesus was doing, he had a glimmer of hope. He sought out Christ. He brought this boy who likely by this time had many scars, probably even injuries. He sought out Christ. And so he finally arrives. He's asking, where is he? He's making his way. He comes to the disciples. He's heard that the disciples have had success in other other places, casting out demons. But the disciples of Jesus are no help. They can't cast it out. But the father doesn't give up. 
The Father waits to see Jesus. Now, as we think about the disciples here, what was going on with them? Jesus had given them authority to cast out demons. In Matthew 10, verses 7 and 8, Jesus told them, and proclaim as you go. This was him sending out his disciples. He said, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Heal the sick, raise the dead, cleanse the lepers, cast out demons. So the disciples were given the authority of Christ himself to do these very things. Why did they fail? Well, their failure reminds us of a couple of very important things. Number one, man is always deficient in his ability to serve God. We can, all of us in Christ, we can serve God. But our service will always be imperfect. Christ is the only perfect servant. The reason that our service will always be imperfect, it, will, it can be sincere, it definitely can be beneficial. I don't mean to deter us from the idea of service, but we do want to remember and understand that in and of ourselves, we have no power to do anything. What the disciples had was a delegated authority. And so what was going on in their minds and hearts is that they had probably forgotten that. They were probably underdoing ministry in their own steam and by their own wisdom and doing it in their own strength and forgetting what Jesus had told them. I am the vine, you are the branches. Apart from me, you can do nothing. But secondly, the failure of the disciples is also due to their unbelief. They had either taken the authority that they exercised for granted or they had come to believe that the power and authority that they exercised was inherent to themselves. Either way, they were not looking to God and depending upon God in faith as they sought to do the work of the kingdom. And so because of their unbelief, they failed. Now, thankfully, the faltering ability of the disciples did not result in the father giving up and leaving. When the disciples couldn't cast out the demon, he stayed there with his son, hoping and believing that Jesus would be able to do what the disciples could not. And his actions proved that at some level, he recognized the supremacy of Christ. As you sit before me as a believer today, do you realize that? When your life is falling apart, when every other possibility fails you, do you yet believe in Christ? You see, this is one of the ways that Satan is always at work to, 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 to lead us to unbelief, to lead us to doubt the mercy and the strength and the grace of God. We are going to face trials in this world. We live in a sinful world. We face sinful circumstances all the time. We are going to face difficulty. We are going to have difficulty in relationships, difficulty in the work that we do, difficulty in our parenting and in our marriage. We're going to have death and disease that either affects us or a member of our family. And we are going to face trials. And what Satan wants us to tempt us to do, what the world wants to tempt us to do, what our own flesh wants us to do is to check out. I've got to fend for myself. I've got to, no one else is going to help me make the decision that has to be made. I need to do this. I need to take this action. I've got to take control of this situation myself. And we get to a place where we're not looking to Christ. We're not trusting his sovereignty in every one of our circumstances. We're not searching his word direct us and, and how we should understand our circumstances and, and how we should respond in a godly manner. 
we're not resting in or trusting in the supremacy of Christ. Brothers and sisters, like this father, we need to understand in our greatest times of desperation, Christ is everything we need. And I know it's sometimes easy for a pastor to stand in front of you and say that, because you're thinking to yourself, you know, Pastor Sean, I've been in that place, or I'm in that place now, and I've been, I've been crying out to God, and I'm not getting an answer, and I'm not sure what to do, and I feel like my prayers are going no higher than the ceiling. There is no panic button next to the throne of God. He has not left you. He has not forsaken you. He has placed you exactly where you are in precisely the circumstances you are in to deepen your faith, not to cause you to doubt him. As Pastor Bob read from the scripture this morning, every one of the days of your life was written in his book before there was one of them. Trust him. Even if you have all these big feelings and hurts and you're wondering where he is at, Trust him. Keep seeking him. Keep praying to him. Be like Job, who even when he had lost, all 10 of his children died. All of his wealth was gone in a day. He himself was struck with, with a paralyzing case of boils from the top of his head to the sole of his foot. Even in those circumstances, Job would say, though he slay me, yet will I hope in him. The supremacy of Christ is our comfort and our peace. Let's go now to my second point as we look at Jesus, as we see Jesus rebuking the faithless and the demonic. Jesus answered to this father, and he's not just speaking to the father, he's speaking to the crowd. Oh, faithless and twisted generation, how long am I to be with you and bear with you? Bring your son here. You know, when we come to the second point, it almost kind of seems to us that Jesus isn't being very Jesus-like, right? This rebuke, if we read it a certain way, seems to be very impatient and exasperated. It seems to be kind of a harsh response on the part of Jesus. But we know Jesus would never be sinfully angry. He would never fail to be patient, nor would Jesus ever be accusatory or demeaning or unloving. What he says is a strong rebuke and a rhetorical question, which is meant to make it clear to everyone present, and particularly his disciples, that they continue to struggle with unbelief even as his time on earth is drawing to an end. In other words, I want us to understand Jesus isn't there going, you faithless and twisted generation, what am I going to do with you? He's speaking to the crowd and he's saying, oh, faithless and twisted generation, how long am I to bear with you? One commentator noted that part of what drove this rebuke was likely the distinct difference between what Christ experienced on the mountain versus what he experienced on the plain below. The day before had been a wonderful time of encouragement and prayer and glorified communion on the Mount of Transfiguration. But as Jesus came down the mountain into, into this ruckus, he now felt like a stranger in the midst of unbelief. And if we stop and consider it from that point, it makes sense. 
He had just had this incredible moment of fellowship with Moses and Elijah and his father speaking from heaven. And now he came down the mountain and he was met by a father whose heart ached and despaired over the condition of his son. Jesus had seen many such persons and his heart always ached at seeing the effects of sin. The multitudes, there, there were many there, but like so many times before, there were many that were there just looking for a sideshow. They, they wanted to see miracles happen, but they didn't want any part of believing in him. And then you had the scribes and the Pharisees and the religious leaders that Mark tells us were there. They were speaking evil of him, arguing with his disciples, trying to undermine his ministry, looking for evidence to convict him of a capital crime. And then his own disciples, these were his men who he had the most intimate relationship with, men that he had poured himself into and taught diligently. And he'd, he'd even granted them divine authority to minister in his name. And now there were these men standing there befuddled, shrugging their shoulders, impotent in the face of human need. If you've ever been in a place where you find yourself just kind of surrounded by discouraging people, remember Christ has been there. Christ has been there. So Jesus first rebuked them for being faithless. And if we piece together the timeline of the Gospels, it seems that the disciples' unbelief and prayerlessness had developed in just about a week. In a mere matter of days, they had drifted from dependence upon God to dependence upon themselves. Secondly, though, notice that Jesus says they had become twisted, which means it refers to something that's distorted or corrupt or misinterpreted. And commentators are pretty unified on this being a direct reference to the famous song of Moses in Deuteronomy 32. You see, in Deuteronomy 32, God warns his people of the consequences of becoming a twisted and perverse people, devoid of faith in Yahweh. And the song of Moses from Deuteronomy 32 was a well-known part of the liturgy in the Jewish synagogue in the first century. So almost every Jew that heard Jesus say this would have realized that Jesus was making reference to the words of Moses back in the Old Testament in Deuteronomy 32. They would have understood that Jesus was effectively saying, you have become the very kind of people that Moses warned about. Well, what solution did Jesus offer then? Himself. Jesus stood in the midst of all this unbelief and he said to the Father, bring your son here. He would show them again a fresh revelation of the power and glory of God. Now, the demon in the boy, he didn't want any part of Christ. And so he threw the boy to the ground into convulsions rather than allowing him to walk over to the Savior. Mark tells us again that he was writhing on the ground, foaming at the mouth. Imagine the scene in the middle of a crowd. Imagine everyone there seeing that scarred boy wallowing in the dust and dirt, drooling and foaming at the mouth, mutely staring up at his father through terror-filled eyes. And so Jesus stepped towards him. Jesus, the most compassionate and powerful man ever to walk the face of the earth, stepped towards the boy to end his suffering. And as with every exorcism that Christ performed when the Lord of glory spoke, the demon had to obey. Satan and his minions seek to oppose and undermine the glory of God in every possible way. They hate humanity because we are made in God's image and because we are objects of his special concern. 
And so Satan and his demons, they manipulate, they tempt, they possess human beings with the ultimate goal of destroying as many of us as possible. Yet even they must flee at the rebuke of Almighty God. Jesus simply, as it says here in the text, healed the boy and gave him back to his father. If you've ever held a sick child, if you've ever held a child perhaps in the hospital, if you've ever had to hold your child perhaps even fearing for their life, what a feeling of elation you understand this would be. That child that was previously convulsing and foaming at the mouth that you had to watch for every second is now restored and healed and calm and smiling up at you in your arms because the Lord of glory has healed him. That's what Jesus does. He heals us. It's a great picture of what Jesus does for every child he calls to himself. He cleanses us from our sins. He gives us a new mind and a new heart in regeneration. He brings us into union with himself and his righteousness is imputed to us so that we may be declared justified before our heavenly father. Spiritually, brothers and sisters, we are no different than this boy. Apart from God, apart from Christ, we are completely unable to affect or accomplish any aspect of our own salvation. If you are sitting here this morning and you think that you're a pretty good person, living a pretty good life, and that you're going to stand before the judge one day and proclaim the merits of what you have accomplished, I want you to understand you are deceived. God's standard, it tells us right at the end of Matthew 5, is perfection. You must be perfect as your heavenly father is perfect. If you have sinned or fallen short of his law, his glory even once, you deserve his eternal wrath and condemnation. If you presume to stand before God and claim your own merits, you only prove you're suffering from the sin of pride. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. He is the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father but through him, John 14, 6. There is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved, Acts 4, 12. If you turn and believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, he will forgive you. He will set you free from this body of sin and death. He will lavish upon you his tender mercies, his grace. He will forgive you and make you his very own child. Do not delay. This very day, the gift of eternity is held out to you. Receive it with joy. Believe on Jesus Christ and be saved. That takes us to the third group that we'll look at very briefly here. The people they were astonished at the majesty of Christ. That's my final point. Astonished at the majesty of Christ. And it's right there, the very last verse of our text, Luke 9, verse 43. And all were astonished at the majesty of God. And this is important how Luke phrased this. Because the people at this point, they weren't just seeing, wow, this is an amazing work by an itinerant rabbi. The people were beginning to recognize there is a work of God going on through this man. The failure of the disciples to be able to cast out this particular demon had created a unique opportunity for the superiority 
and the uniqueness of Christ to once again be witnessed by the crowds. Christ cast this demon out very easily and then gave the boy back to his father. It was that quick, it was that clear. One moment this boy is convulsing, writhing, drooling on the ground. The next moment he is peaceful in his father's arms. It was that stunning. The splendor of God displayed on the mountain the day before had now been made apparent to the multitudes down below. And this, you know, I told you I would do this last week. This is where I want to take us on a little journey in biblical theology. I want us to understand this story in the greater biblical timeline as we talk, as we see the Bible as a history of redemption. Genesis to the end of Revelation. We see creation, we see man made in God's image for his glory, we see the fall into sin. And the entirety of the Bible is about God bringing about, by his sovereign purpose, the salvation of man. So that just as we began with him in the Garden of Eden, we end with him in a garden-like place known as heaven through the merits of Jesus Christ our Lord. That is a history of redemption. And I want you to think about what happened in the text before? As we think about God incarnate communing with Elijah and Moses on the mountaintop, I want us to remember the last time that God was with Moses on the mountaintop, and that was in Exodus 32. In Exodus 32, the people of Israel had just been brought out of their slavery in Egypt with the greatest signs and wonders that the world had ever seen up to that point. They were now waiting at the foot of Mount Sinai, where Moses, God's mediator, God's appointed deliverer, Moses went up on the mountain to meet with God, to receive the law, to receive the Ten Commandments. And you remember what happened when the people down in the valley, when Moses was up there too long, they had Aaron forge a golden calf, and they began worshiping it and revelry and song. And when Moses heard it, God heard it, Moses came down from the mountain and he smashed the tablets of the Ten Commandments in pieces in righteous anger. He set the golden calf on fire and then ground it into powder, threw it in the water and made the people drink the bitter water. Moses then called the sons of Levi to his side and he sent the sons of Levi throughout the camp to slay over 3,000 of the men. And even after all that, God additionally sent a plague upon the people for their sin against him of idolatry. And so I want you to think about these two mountaintop experiences and the two ways we see the valley that followed afterwards. In Exodus 32, God was communing with Moses on the mountaintop and the people down below had given themselves over to unbelief. Moses came down the mountain to rebuke them, to pour out wrath and exact judgment. Here in Luke 9, God was once again communing with Moses on the mountaintop, and the people down below had given themselves over to unbelief. Only this time, Moses didn't come down the mountain. God came down the mountain to rebuke them. But he did not come in anger and bitterness. God did not come with the sword and with plague. God came down the mountain to bring healing and grace, to show his people his power and his majesty. Brothers and sisters, do you see the difference there between old covenant and new covenant? 
We are meant to be astonished. We are meant to be in awe of the wonderful grace of our Savior. Because the truth of the matter is that for our unbelief, we too deserve judgment. We too deserve a rebuke. But that's not what Christ gives us, is it? Even in his rebuke, he is loving. Even in his touch, he is healing. And those who have had an audience with his majesty will never be the same, will never look at the world or things of this life the same. We are meant to be changed by the reality of the Savior who lavishes upon us his grace. Everything that we now seek and desire in life is to be defined by want of our almighty king. As A.W. Pink said, happy is the soul that has been awed by a view of God's majesty. Happy is the soul that has been awed by a view of God's majesty. This God of all glory This judge of all the earth, he comes to you in your moment of unbelief, not to crush you, but to heal you, to love you, to strengthen you, to be gentle with you, to call you back to dependence upon him, not yourself, to get you to stop listening to the voices of of everyone else who's telling you what they think you should do, your Savior is saying, come, my child, sit at my feet. Learn from me. My yoke is easy. My burden is light. In me you will have life. That is the grace of God, brothers and sisters, at which we should be astonished. Psalm 96, verses 5 and 6. The Lord made the heavens. Splendor and majesty are before him. Strength and beauty are his sanctuary. Draw near to him. By the shed blood of Christ, you are welcome in the holy of holies before the almighty God of the universe. Trust him. Draw near to him. And know the sufficiency of his love. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for the truth of your word. We thank you for the wonder, Lord, of of how we see you respond in grace. When, Lord, we, we deserve wrath. We deserve judgment. Yet you have given your son that we may have life and have it abundantly. May we walk in it, trusting in you, knowing that you are capable of all miracles and wonders if we but trust and believe. In Jesus' precious name we pray, amen.